Welcome to On Balance. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. I'll be your guide as we explore the stories of today with the personalities impacting tomorrow. Welcome to On Balance. Okay, folks, welcome to another edition of On Balance. I would say, you know, why don't you just join me and let's dot planet Earth with our new, our next guest, Dave Sherwood. Uh, he is the founder, co-founder and CEO of Biblio. Uh, I love Dave's background and his bio. He, I'm going to read some of it here just because I don't want to get it wrong. And I also think it's important uh, for folks to know his background. But he is the co-founder and chairman also of Teach, Learn, Grow. He serves as a board advisor at Perlos and is a founding member of the EdTech Founders Club. He earned his bachelor's degree at the University of Western Australia before coming to Oxford University on a Rhodes Scholarship. Uh, quite a background, Dave. Uh, why work in education? Let's just start there. Yeah, it's a, a great point. I think, um, so both my parents worked in education. So I, I think I kind of soaked it up a bit from them. But I never really thought about that. I think that was quite subconscious, you know. Um, it was when I got involved with Teach, Learn, Grow, um, set up a charity to do free mass tutoring to rural Indigenous Australians that I kind of um, uh, fell in love with working in education, I suppose. I originally wanted to be a research chemist, um, but it turned out I was terrible in the lab. So that was never going to work. <laughs> That's kind of a prerequisite to be good, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it took me years to figure that out. It's kind of obvious, really, but, you know, that's how big these things are. So, so tell us about Biblio. Uh, I mean, look, the numbers are inc- are very, very impressive in what what it's doing, the reach that you have. Obviously, we were talking off air just about how you you truly are dotting uh, the world and spending a lot of time over here in the U.S. What do you think you what need do you think you've met? And did you think right out of the gate that there was this incredible opportunity and gap that you were going to be filling? Really good question. So I'll start with like the, the, the story of like how we, my co-founders and I, set the you up. Um, I had left Australia on the road scholarship, as as you mentioned, and they had this um, essentially bursary to pay for our travel. And you'd think that you'd just use it for an airfare, but um, a previous few um, cohorts had figured out you could spend on whatever you wanted. So they devised sort of the most complicated method to get from Australia to Oxford, which involved flying to Beijing, catching the Trans-Siberian from Beijing to Mongolia to Siberia to Moscow to St. Petersburg. And some even trained all the way to London, but that that was too much for us. We flew from St. Petersburg to to London. So on that journey, with three strangers, also road scholars, uh, had a lot of time to think because you're on the train for for 21 days, including the stopovers. And um, I knew I wanted to start a business because I'd given up teaching and grow operationally and there was a new person running that. And, and I kind of got itchy feet and was like, I've got to do so. I've got to build a new um, thing and I want to do a business. Um, and I, I wasn't dead set on education. It was that I knew software was a really important sector. So I wanted to do software. And we had played around with software a bit at Teach Learn Grow. So, so I had some familiarity. And I was thinking of all the things software could do to improve my life as a student. And I was looking at my phone um, and going through the different things software had changed over the decades. The music was drastically different as Spotify versus CDs. You know, this is my lifetime. Netflix versus DVDs and even email, um, you know, the modern email apps like uh, Superhuman versus the original emails apps, which were terrible and really hard to use. And the thing that struck me was books. And I actually read on a Kindle and I read on my phone, uh, which I think is unusual, particularly reading on your phone. 
Um, but it just struck me that nothing had been done with books. It was still kind of the same. You buy a book for, you know, $30 and, and, and you, you have no real technology enhancement other than a light. The torch is built into the phone. Um, and so I was like, there's got to be a lot more that can be done with software plus books. And then sometime later, I started to focus on textbooks, obviously as a university student myself. Um, think things about affordability, accessibility, and just generally, as I said, the software hadn't really done anything. The, the, the potential of the software was huge in terms of making you a better student and helping you learn quicker, but it hadn't done anything. So you're just being given these books to read digitally as, as you would in print. So, so that's how it came about, yeah. So I think there's something that's very interesting is an entrepreneur, being an entrepreneur in the education space. There is the, look, if this were the consumer electronics space, go ahead and innovate like crazy and, and you know, your consumer will catch up. The education market mm -hmm. for most is not exactly that, that way. And sometimes there is a fear or a danger or an anxiety that you can innovate in essence too far ahead of where the market is in the way in which they expect the buckets of funding that they are going to apply towards a new technology and the buy-in sort of at the ground level, the student, the educator level. Given that you had identified these sort of openings potentially or these gaps on your incredible adventure, which sounds like another side story, uh, maybe with a different beverage that would be fun to have. Um, help me understand your thought process as an entrepreneur when you were thinking about that, because you can come right on the scene and be a disruptor but that disruption in education and especially in higher ed that is notorious for being sort of slow moving uh could actually get you out of business before you're even in business so how do you balance that as an entrepreneur and someone who wants to be creative and do something really different yeah I th and i think education is a great example for the reasons you just said there are a lot of really great products that almost definitely will be highly used in future but if you release them too early you can't get buy-in from teaching stuff generally, right? You won't get uptake and the business will fail. So there have been countless examples of that. Um, I didn't have a background in ed tech or higher ed. So we were kind of lucky in the sense that we struck out to do textbooks um, and it turned out, um, and we didn't really think this through at the time, that one of the beauties of working with textbooks and the big publishers, you know, Pearson and Wiley and whatnot, is the large majority of teaching staff already use that. They already have a textbook in print, right? But they teach from it, it fits in with their course. So we didn't have to do that difficult process that most ed tech companies have to do where you have to convince the teacher to do some stuff or slightly change their workflow or their course to actually use your software. It was like, you actually as a teaching staff, you don't have to touch our software. Like we'd love you to use it and build it into your course or whatever. But if you don't want to, don't worry, just reference it. And the central administrator will make sure it appears in the um, learning management system folder. So there's two things there. One is that um, it's super easy to adopt. And the other is that we don't sell to teaching staff. Uh, we obviously train them and we love working with them. But um, generally, we like to sell to the university executive or the library director, somebody that can like centrally roll out these um, content programs. And, and they know that everybody's already adopted stuff and they get the reading list off, off the staff. So that is their interaction with the staff. But it's not usually with their tech, they would have to convince the staff to start trying this new technology. Some would, the early adopters, perhaps none would, but ideally some would, but a large number would not. And so we're very lucky there. And, and that was a complete fluke, fluke frankly, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but, um, 
yeah, I think if, if you're entering EdTech, you need to think about as low a barrier to adoption as possible. And you can always bring nice, complicated technologies in later. Uh, and uh, I can talk a bit more about that at some point if, if you'd like me to. But like, start with an easy technology that's matching existing workflows and curricula. Let's talk about the experience that the student has. So what, t- walk me into the, the world that is Biblio. Well, originally we started at B2C, so we thought, you know, Spotify for textbooks. Um, but we learned quickly, or maybe slowly, but we learned that um, B2B was the way to go. So institutions would pay for the platform, the content the students would get it free. So that's the first point. It's a really great driver of, uh, you know, um, equality by ensuring all students have access to the content they need day one. Whereas Prior to Billy being in place, students generally buy themselves and consequently a number can't afford it or don't buy it or whatnot. So particularly the lowest socioeconomic groups miss out um, disproportionately. So that's the first point. The second is um, we, we try to really make the best of the technology. So there's an awesome search engine um, we're, we're, we're rolling out for um, ro- ro- rolling out for uh, an assessment. Um, system, analytics, et cetera. So there's a huge amount of technology the student can use to make their learning um, faster, ideally more efficient, more effective. Um, but in terms of the interaction with us, it's super simple. We kind of blend into the university ecosystem. They don't have to come to us. They don't really have to know um, what BibliU is. They just go to their learning management system folder. They go to their library search engine. They go to wherever they normally go to get, you know, course materials, um, lecture slides, all the stuff they get to learn. And we're just in there with everything else. So you'll have like a lecture slide or a lecture video, and then you'll have a link to the book you build with you and you go straight in there. So so again, um, minimum friction um, for the students. So they don't have to change the way they work. They don't have to create an account with us, et cetera, et cetera. So. I love that that use of minimum minimal friction. I think that's a really key phrase in thinking about because it's not just about who you're in essence selling to. It's also about who you are collaborating with as as sort of shared space, meaning entities. So talk about the relationship with the with the LMS world and how you what what have been some lessons along the way? Because I think learning management systems have been thought of as these big these behemoths, right? And the sort of catch-all environment, and over time, I think we've developed a different relationship. What's that been like for you, and how do you understand your role representing or saying Biblio in the context of a learning management system as we start to see them evolve and grow? Yeah, yeah, um, it's a really good point, and um, people often think that edtech's kind of like you know people compete with a learning management system, or there's all these different systems. But actually, behind the scenes, almost all the systems plug into the learning management system, sometimes the SIS, sometimes the library search and sometimes the finance system. So like ultimately you have these great hubs that bring all the technology nicely together. So we have LTI integrations with them. We feedback data to the institution so they can see um, which students are reading, how much they're reading. If we have quizzes, you know, what, what, how they're performing on, on the quiz, are they competent as well as have they comprehended the information? So we have this great kind of LTI, which is an API link with the learning management system, just feeding that data into the institution and allowing them to consolidate data from all the EdTech providers into that kind of single LMS view, which is really important for them. And then back to your point on low friction, we have um, uh, uh, an embed that, that, that is in the LMS. So they don't even need to come to biblio.com. They can be in Moodle or, or Canvas and which they're in and they never leave that environment and we just appear as like a screen there. So 
I think are the really two key things. And we've talked to those companies over the years um, that, that are great partners and they're, they're very big on neutrality. So they don't favor certain companies over others. They've kind of avoided um, writing functionality to, to compete with their partners as well. So I think the LMS companies have, have, have been great to work with. You know? Let's talk about one challenge that a lot of companies in ed tech is not, it, this is not just an ed tech issue is once you have something that is beyond viable, right? And you have buy-in and you have market share, you become then a repository of requests <laughs> and it becomes a real struggle as a business leader to not think about or the danger of being everything to everybody. So have, have you been able to, as a company, chalk the parameters of the field and define that landscape or has it helped to, has it defined it for you based on the request or the omission of requests that you thought maybe you were going to get? It's a great question. I think as a BSC software company, it's generally a lot easier to, 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 to do this. Um, as in, to your point, build a single clear product that applies to all consumers and you build the next feature based generally on the number of consumers that want it. Some people have philosophical views too where they can predict features. I'm a bit more skeptical about that. But um, <laughs> in the B2B space, it's way more complicated because as you say, each big, it will have a big contract that's say, I don't know, 10% of our revenue and 10% of students on our platform. And that new contract will be like, we need this, that, this functionality. And it, in, in reality, it's very difficult. Whilst you can kind of tamper expectations and consolidate things, it's difficult to say no and still be their partner. Um, so, yeah, what, what the trick really is trying to get a number of institutions that are very similar. So we stick to UK, US only. And frankly, the product in the UK and the US is quite different. So two geographies is already a lot. We have different engineering teams focused on each geography so that each is consistently getting new functionality. And then, yeah, like you say, um, try to sell the same thing to each institution. So it's like get your learning content from us, get your courseware from us. Um, and therefore, over time, a lot of their specific requests become generic because everybody has the same problems. And I think it's, there's a real skill from the head of products and, you know, frankly, the head of sales and CEO have to listen to the head of products in trying to distinguish what of these specific requests we should build and think will be used elsewhere and what specific requests will not be used elsewhere and try to say yes to the ones that we use elsewhere and no to the others. But it's really challenging and ultimately the product in a B2B space is quite complicated and um, has lots of different elements that don't apply to all customers. Let's wrap with this, Dave. Let's talk about your journey as an entrepreneur. Talk about how this has changed you. Um, and more importantly, I think it's it's always a value to the audience writ large to understand what are the things as an entrepreneur that you have discovered about yourself that you really didn't going in think didn't even I don't know consciously think that that was a talent or a skill that you bring because to be an entrepreneur and to be a successful one you wear a lot of hats and for most they are new experiences in trying on those hats and hopefully keeping keeping them on their heads successfully. <laughs> um, what have you learned about yourself through this journey and what has surprised you about the areas of I think maybe 
heightened success that is, you know, it's not about not being humble, but I think it, there is a, a point in an entrepreneur's life where there is an acknowledgement of the things that we're good at and the things that we want to continue to grow at. And those items that we just, that's just not our lane. And hence we have fantastic team members, co-leadership teams, these sorts of things. So what have you learned through this journey about yourself that has both surprised you, but also given you sort of that vehicle to learn more about yourself? Yeah, great question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, first and foremost, you need to recognize and, and have people around you and do regular performance reviews. So you realize where your deficiencies are and bring great people in to help. I think too many founders don't do that. And then the company will be very weak in that area because the CEO is not letting anyone in there or they're not bringing someone in to help. I think for me, thinking about unexpected strengths or things I've enjoyed, et cetera, the first is sales. I didn't really realize how much sales a CEO has to do. <laughs> you know, you've got vendors, you've got publishers, you've got customers. I think the first year of selling to customers, I really struggled with um, uh, rejection. You know, in any sales organization, you have probabilities of success. And, you know, um, we, we, we now convert about 10% of our first meetings to customers. But back then, and, and, and that seems so normal to me now, back then, you know, every loss I kind of felt personally and, and thought, um, you know, that, that we were being somewhat fronted or whatever. And I didn't really get it. And, and I, I didn't enjoy it that much. It was tough. But probably after a year or two, and I have a great head of sales now. With the experience, I've come to enjoy sales. So I love sitting with customers. Um, even when we have a sales team, so I never do it one-to-one anymore. There'll always be a sales rep kind of leading, but I'll chip in with some vision points and whatever. Um, I love that. I like, enjoy it. I prefer it to see my office saying emails, <laughs> which <laughs> kind of where I was. Um, but also, I've come to just accept rejection on a sales side. Like, I know that, you know, a good number will say no and, and not stay personally, just move on. And um, so there's that. Investor relations, probably second. I didn't have any experience. Um, I didn't really know the, 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 the balance between getting them hyped up and setting really realistic expectations um again had some great people on the board that have helped and advisors that have helped me with that and that's so important um, and then the third one is probably a bit left field is is better work-life balance i think when i started out I'd work all, the whole team would work all saturday plus all week and i would often work sundays too so just working all the time but probably about year two it, it started being clear that that wasn't sustainable but also you know Fortunately, met um, my, my wife, Vicky, and the, the longer we were together, sort of the more she influenced me into to enjoying life. So I'm much more disciplined now. I, I generally work strictly Monday to Friday. I have fixed working hours in the day. I don't check emails outside of those hours in general, unless there's a special need, um, like an investment round about to close. But, um, and that's so important because, you know, I'm seven years in and in, in all likelihood, will be here for, for, for many, many more years. And whilst people like Elon Musk talk about not sleeping and working 20 hours a day, I've never seen it work sustainably. Uh, not for myself, but not. I've seen lots of talented people around me try that lifestyle, and it never seems to work. So um, well done to Elon if it works for him, but I think for the majority of humans, it, it doesn't work. And you have to be here for the long haul, right? And you have to be motivated and excited for the long haul too. Um, so that's the other one. 
those are fantastic points of advice and I appreciate the transparency and I have no doubt the audience appreciates, appreciates that transparency because we're, we're now raising generations of entrepreneurs uh, at the youngest levels. So I think these are lessons that hopefully will, will benefit them. And obviously your efforts are benefiting universities and colleges across the world, not just uh, in your country currently in the UK, in where you are in the UK or your home country of Australia or the US. So continued success, Dave, in all that you're doing. I want to make sure that people can go and check out Dave and connect with him in Biblio. You can go to Biblio, that's B-I-B-L-I-U.com, where they have worked with, I'm sure these these data points are not even updated, Dave, if, I, if you're like any or most entrepreneurs, but over working with over 2,000 publishers, 2 million learning assets, 160 plus universities and colleges, over 460,000 monthly study hours, and the list goes on and on to include over 2 million students with instant access through their platform. So Dave, once again, thank you for all that you're doing. Thank you for your transparency as an entrepreneur, and we wish you all the best. I'm your host, Dr. Rod Berger. This concludes another chapter of On Balance. Connect with me via LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. I'm Dr. Rod Berger.